0: Good evening, everybody. My name is Bob Hanke. I'm one of the, the editors of what is known as the Lex Working Paper Series. Lex stands for LSE Europe in Question Series. You see why we wanted to um, shorten that a bit. right? Um, every year we have an event. We usually have a lecture, but this time around we thought there's so much going on in Europe and in Britain, in Europe, that it would make sense to try and figure out collectively, what sort of interesting things are going on and what kind of reference points we have in the history of the the continent as a whole. So um, I'm not going to say much about that um, myself. I just wanted to to introduce our our LSE Europe in question, also known as Lex series, and I'm happy to hand over now to Lucia.
1: So, good evening, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the LSE. Welcome to this uh, event uh, that has been organized by the European Institute as part, as uh, we just heard, of the uh, LEX uh, series. My name is Lucia Rubinelli. Uh, I am a fellow in political theory at the Department of Government uh, here at the LSE. And uh, the title of tonight's event is Wither Europe Uh, Historical Perspectives on uh, 2017. I think that. uh, let me just say a few words, but I, I think that the title is particularly interesting because somehow it points at, um, it has, it's composed of two elements, let's say. Uh, on the one hand, it clearly points at the future of Europe, it asks uh, where will Europe go, uh, so it's forward looking, but on the other hand, it also is backward looking in the sense that it introduces an element of history in the reflection. And I think that these two elements somehow resonate with uh, part of the problems that many of us might have experienced uh, when trying to make sense uh, of um, current political events. Um, are we to interpret what's going on um, as completely new, as a break from the past, or actually as part of uh, a longer historical trajectory? Um, on the one end, I think that um, many of us when reading the news um, have been uh, experiencing the sensation, the feeling of saying this is completely extraordinary, for instance Brexit. Uh, this, is not, this somehow disrupts the trajectory, the historical narrative that we've been used to um, think um, with when thinking about Europe. Uh, so the, the, event, the recent events seem to be novel, seems to be not um, easy to understand in relation to uh, the the historical instruments we have been uh, using so far. On the other hand, however, um, I also think that um, particularly in the public discourse there's much talking about how history can help us understand what is going on. And commentators uh, as well as scholars have been pointing out that actually uh, some of these events maybe only partially, but could be considered just a repetition of history, or that actually history, or that they are are far from being exceptional, they are the result of longer historical trajectories that maybe are just not visible yet, but uh, they are there. So I guess that what we will try to do tonight is to bridge the gap between these two ways of looking at current politics and try to see, um, try to make sense of current and future events by looking at their past, but also trying to uh, keep in mind the peculiarities of 2017, if you want. Um, So the question we have asked to our speakers today is um, one about uh, potential analogies between 2017 and other historical events. Uh, We will be discussing whether these analogies exist, whether there are also differences, Um, what can we learn from these analogies and differences, Uh, whether history can teach us something and can help us, uh, can guide us, Uh, through um, current uh, political events and we're very lucky tonight uh, to have three distinguished speakers here so uh, I will introduce them in turn Um, first is Michael Cox uh, who's professor emeritus at the Department of International Relations here at the LSE Uh, he's also the director of um, LSE ideas which is a think tank working on foreign policy based here at the LSE uh, Michael uh, has been um, working on international relations. He has been writing extensively on the Cold War, on U.S. and British foreign policy, on the world order after 9/11, um, as well as on the crisis of the relation um, of the transatlantic relation. And tonight, he will bring insights from his research into um, our uh, debate on uh, analogies between 2017 and um, Europe's um, history. After Michael, uh, we will have, uh, we'll hear from uh, Abby Ines, uh, who's associate professor at the European Institute. Uh, she uh, focuses on, uh, her research is on uh, the political economy of Europe. Um, she has been working on the welfare state, uh, on um, uh, the, degree, the development of um, a political party system in Europe. And she has a special focus on uh, Central Europe, and we're very glad to have her uh, here tonight um, because she will bring, again, uh, her interest in political economy, so disciplinary perspective also uh, on uh, our question. And then last but not least, Mike Savage, uh, who is um, uh, the Martin White Professor of Sociology in the Sociology Department. He's also a Fellow of the British Academy and the Co-Director of the LSE International Inequalities Institute. Uh, his research deals primarily with uh, inequalities, social stratification, as well as social classes. Uh, his book on um, social class in the 21st century that was published a couple of years ago is now a bestseller. And uh, we ask him again to um, help us reflect on um, the direction that, his, uh, that Europe is taking uh, by looking at its history and specific at the um, presence of uh, what in, like, reflections on inequalities can help us um, shed light on Uh, okay so now without uh, further ado uh, I'll um, leave the floor to the speakers each of them will speak for about 10-15 minutes and then we will open the floor uh, to questions Uh, if any of you want to tweet the hashtag is LSE Europe the event is being recorded and hopefully it will uh, be available as a podcast uh, fairly soon and yeah that's it so now Michael
2: okay well good evening everybody thank you very much for this invitation uh, the, they always say that when you're going to answer a question, answer the question. Um, good advice to students, by the way, as well. There's two parts to the debate. There's a, a wither, which I assume means we look forward, which is the difficult bit, if not impossible. And then there's the history bit, which is presumably looking back. When you pose that at the very beginning of your comments about what do we learn from history. I was reminded of an article written very many years ago by an American grand strategist called Walt Rostow, W. W. Rostow, and he had just reviewed a book by an English-British historian called Paul Kennedy, and the title of that book, which came out in 1987, was The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, and in that, Paul Kennedy, this Englishman, um, although in fact he's got an Irish background, In the rise and fall of the great powers, he actually made, he had the temerity to suggest that the United States might be in decline like all other great powers in history. Now, Walt Rostow, being a good American nationalist, wasn't very happy with this Brit making analogies. And he wrote a rather fierce polemic against Kennedy saying, beware historians bearing false historical analogies. (laughs) So maybe the warning sign over my head is beware historians who say there are simple analogies. And the more I thought about this question tonight about 2017 and does it bear any resemblance to anything in the past, I suppose my short answer is I can't find much. However, we can learn from history. We can say not just what it might be like, but what it might not be like. So part of my answer in terms of dates is what it's not like. And that leads me too, by the way, in terms of history, not to the pessimistic conclusions. You know, most historians, by definition, tend to be rather pessimistic people Uh, because they think history really has horrible lessons to teach us. It always keeps repeating itself. But the lessons I draw from history are rather optimistic ones, not the pessimistic ones. The future may be difficult, but the past, if it's got any lessons to teach us at all, is that I don't think it's going to be like the past, and that may be something worth thinking about in an optimistic sense. We've been in much worse places before, and I think some historical perspective more generally would actually remind us of where we are today and compare to where we have once been in the 19th and 20th century. Where we are today, it seems to me, we're in a much more secure place, and that is not a very fashionable thing to say. We're in a much better place than once we ever were before, and I'll just give a few historical analogies to try and demonstrate what I want to argue. On the wither bit, I'm always worried about wither. Uh, It's a wonderful word, very rarely used, so I rather like it. Uh, The wither bit really is a cause for concern, and I don't want to make the obvious point that ever since the optimism drained out of the debate about uh, Europe sometime around 2007 when BN Paribas began to discover there were some very dodgy debts on its books. um, Since then, we've seen an enormous switch in the debate about Europe from what I would call macro-optimism, which kind of ran through 2004, 5, 6 and 7. Wonderful titles to books which nobody ever any longer reads. The 21st century will be European, uh, Europe as empire, Europe as superpower, extraordinary optimism. We switched right over uh, since 2008 and certainly since 2009 to an entirely different narrative. And that maybe that may should warn us about, about the past and thinking about it. A, we didn't predict the crisis and B, perhaps we were over-optimistic at one stage in the, in the project and now there's too much pessimism about Europe moving forward. But clearly there is a cause for concern, as everybody has pointed out. If we're answering the question whither, the answers tend to be it will be bad, it might get worse, it could get even worse than worse, or the whole thing could just collapse and disintegrate. Somebody like George Soros, who's hardly anti-European, uh, I would say, certainly not, not in the sense that some Americans have been. Uh, nonetheless, Soros himself has kind of taken the view that the future looks extremely extremely problematic if Europe and its bankers maybe Germany too continues with the strategy of austerity Uh, there are others who think and good friends of mine here who once very strongly in the pro-European camp still in the strong pro-European camp say the problem is not one of policy the problem is one of architecture the architecture is wrong and in an end the badly designed a badly planned a uh, house, about, like a badly planned hotel, will one day fall down. So do you think it's a policy problem or do you think it's an architectural problem? Obviously, if you think, w- looking forward, you think it's a policy problem, then there is an easier way out. If, if it's not easy, it's easier because you change policy. And, of course, one of the, one of the great debates which has been going on is, in, in essence, while the United States, under Obama at least, and I won't talk about the current president, that's too difficult, Uh, And I can't wither that one either, by the way. I'll I'll leave that to fantasists and other people. Uh, But looking at Europe, if we look at Obama, Obama actually pursued what I would call Keynesian policies without calling them Keynesian, uh, because you shouldn't be a Keynesian today, but that's in essence what he did in the American economy many problems in it, as as we saw from the election of Trump. Nonetheless, uh, you know, he managed to expand the economy and leave to Trump, actually, at least a relatively secure economic situation. And not surprisingly, many Americans took the view that Europeans should be doing something similar, as opposed and distinct to what they were doing. So all you need to do, and this would make you, in a sense, more optimistic about the wither part of it, is, in a sense, change policies. It may be partially architectural, but in in a way, if you change policies, you will then begin to reboot Europe, uh, to reboot the south of Europe, in particular Spain, Portugal, and the rest, and not lead to this massive discrepancy uh, and uneven development between the, the, south, the south of Europe and, and, and its northern part, particularly Germany, and, and, and Holland itself. But it's quite clear there is, in the, wither, in the wither camp, wherever you stand in the wither camp, between the miserablest, the extremely miserable, and the catastrophic, there's, it's very difficult to find very much out there in the literature on, on the policy side, which is um, seriously optimistic, if, if, if indeed quite the opposite of being uh, optimistic. It, it is actually a very miserable subject at the moment. Um, I, I, I feel very sorry for my, my colleagues who have to study the European Union because at least until about the mid-2000s, it was at least a, a happy subject. You could, you know, you could put forward the European Union as a different way of doing international relations. You had the social market model. It wasn't George W. Bush, thank God. Um, it wasn't like the United States it did foreign policy differently, and you know. And over the last few years, I have to say, I've been wondering why my colleagues in the European Institute have been drinking so much. I know why, because, <laughs> because quite quite clearly, it has been a very very tough subject, and and very tough in the sense that it was unexpected. And if we had easy ways out of this, we would have found them by now. And I'm not even sure simple policy changes would uh, would, would lead us would lead us in, in, into the into the new valley of light out of the darkness. I also do take the view, which is slightly optimistic, uh, I think it's actually realistic as well, not just optimistic, I think my optimism is based in realism. To, to use the phrase which was used in that very fine book about the 2008 financial crisis, I think Europe, the European edifice, the European system, the European order, which we now have based around the EU, in spite of Mr Johnson's efforts to say he's not against Europe, he's only against the EU, well, um, it is too big to fail. I mean, any way you look at it, it is simply impossible to see this system fail. And there are reasons for that. There are deep structural reasons as to why. It, I mean, there's a 5% chance. Let's, anything can happen. Let's just take that as a given. Who predicted 9-11? Who predicted the 2008 crash, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to kind of give a little bit there. But the structure, the structure of the current European Union, whatever its faults. Whatever the policy limits, whatever the difficulties it's going to face now and into the future, the wither part again, it strikes me that it's far too big to fail. There are too many elites, there are too many interests, there are too many reasons as to why it should not fail and can't fail. And one of the reasons, and this in a sense brings me to history, one of the reasons it won't fail is because of history. One of the reasons it won't fail is precisely because of history in general. Europe had a pretty rough time between 1914 and 1919. And I'm now mentioning some dates, so it proves I'm a real historian. It had a pretty rough time, let us be perfectly honest, in the 1930s with Hitler in Germany and J.V. Stalin running Russia uh, and a Spanish Civil War. It had an even worse time during World War II, when nearly 65 to 70 million people died, many of those, of course, right across the whole of Europe, including Russia, within that. And it had a pretty, pretty horrible time, if we're honest about it, during the Cold War when Europe and Germany were divided. So I take the view that if we should be optimistic about the future, the a part of it looking forward, one of the reasons we should be, one of the reasons we should at least take some sucker, and why I think it is too big to f- and too important to fail, is simply we've got history behind us, to at least tell us, if it does fail, then what lies in the future is, is pretty catastrophic. I don't think you will repeat a World War I scenario, or a World War II, or a Cold War. That is not going to come back. By the way, I don't like the term new Cold War. I think that is totally misleading as a concept to think about the relations of Western Russia. But, and that is why I, I kind of retain some sense why I think it's not just too big to fail, but it's, it, 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 history itself t- tells us why, it, A, shouldn't fail, and B, why it's very unlikely to fail, because everybody does think historically. I once read an article about the end of the Cold War in 1989, and one of the things I tried very hard to do, I'm not sure it was very successful, because everybody seemed to disagree with me, but that's another question, why do I care if they disagree with me? They could be wrong, I could be right. Um, it was simply making the point that as, as all the policymakers went into 1989, they had a history sitting on their shoulder, all the main policymakers had history sitting on their shoulder. You know, they had the old German question sitting on their shoulder. You know, they had a whole bunch of issues sitting on, their, and that's why what made policymakers so conservative during 1989. They didn't rush into the end of the Cold War. Quite the opposite, they were fearful of the end of the Cold War in 1989. None more fearful, by the way, than the Americans, uh, and to some degree uh, the Soviet Union as well at that time. Because again, history was there to kind of show them this monstrous possibility of history itself, and you don't want to go back there. So, in a way, my argument about history in general is one that if it teaches any lessons, and it it is, that it it shouldn't be, mustn't be, and and I think almost certainly will not be repeated, and this is why I think the European project, whatever its limits, whatever the difficulties and challenges it faces in the years ahead, is going to survive. And indeed, some of the challenges it faces now may make, make it survive even better. Who knows, even Trump may be an asset in the end to the European project, we, we shall have to wait and see. Now, I was asked, and I'll, I'll just be very brief, because you only asked us for 10 minutes, and I'll, I'll try and be disciplined for once in my life. Uh, on, on the question of history itself, and I was asked what dates. In a way, this, this brings me to my kind of, why I think, in a way, while we can learn some general lessons from history, the ones I've just given, which I think lead us to a conclusion that Europe will certainly survive in its, in its current form. I don't think it's about to collapse because the consequence of such a collapse would be so catastrophic, too big to fail. History, nonetheless, it seems to me, suggests to me what, what 2017 is not. And again, this may be some cause for optimism as well. Uh, we're not, for instance, in an 1870 to 1871 moment following the Franco-Prussian War. You know, we're not at the moment where a new German Reich has been announced, although Mrs. Thatcher from up there or down there may think we still are, uh, we, are not at the, we are not at a point, it seems to me, whatever people may think in Greece and elsewhere, I don't think we've got a German question or a German problem in the way that it was cast for large parts of the 20th century. I mean, it's just changed. I mean, you know, one would have to be kind of really peculiar, peculiarly anti-German to think that something has not changed from 45 to 89 and from 89 to now. But that was the dominating question for most of Europe, the, the fundamental, almost insoluble problem for large part of the 20th century, we're not there. We're simply not there. And thank goodness that we are not. Um, we're also not at a moment either. And here again, I'll go back to the end of another... I'll go back to the end of the First World War. I don't think we're in a 1919 moment. I'm at the moment, by the way, engaged in a rather lengthy introduction to John Maynard Keynes's great book, The Economic Consequences of the Peace. Marvellous book. I think a bit wrong, actually, on some of the issues. Very tough on the French, by the way. Too tough on France, I've always thought, but that's another question. But in, in that great book of his, I mean, basically what Keynes lays out in that, that wonderful polemic of his, and it is a terrific polemic, beautifully written, in what he says in that is quite clear. You know, we, because of the failures of Versailles and the failures of Wilson and Clemenceau and, and, and Lloyd George and other than public opinion make the, Germ- make the Germans pay for, for the war and all the rest of it, it was quite clear that in 1919, however clever and however however wise the policymakers had been in 1919. Making a stable peace was almost impossible. I think very, very difficult indeed, extraordinarily difficult to have made a peace which would not have led to the 20 years' crisis. Uh, I, I, I would be fairer on the policymakers than, than Keynes was, because he, you know, he's very tough on Wilson, he's very tough on Clemenceau, very tough on, on Lloyd George particularly. I, I, I think he's far too tough on the policymakers and on the individuals. And the reason for that is I think the structural problems facing Europe then were almost insoluble. I'm not saying it would inevitably lead to the World Depression or inevitably lead to the rise of Hitler in the 30s or or anything else, but just face the problems that were being faced then. A Russian Revolution, very robust, uh, a a post-war situation in Austria and Europe which was disastrous, the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the breakdown of the world trading system which had occurred, uh, the debt problem between the United States and Europe uh, and the reparations problem which so destabilized Germany, a whole series of new states coming into being after the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, many of them deeply authoritarian and very, very unhappy with one another and with their own minorities. You know, that, that was the kind of Europe that was faced just after World War One. We're nowhere near that today. Now, that may be for other reasons which are not very nice reasons because so many of those problems got solved very crudely Uh, in the 30s and in the 40s, but we're nowhere near that. And again, and this would be my very last point in terms of using an historical point of reference for the past to draw some optimism about the future. It doesn't seem to me we're in a 1947 moment either. You know, I mean, if you kind of take us back to 47, where were we? I mean, you know, the Red Army had liberated East Central Europe and, and, and of course, now occupied what becomes known as East Germany. Um, And they weren't going to leave and they weren't going to leave, and that, in a sense, brings us to the Cold War. Uh, you had massive economic chaos in Western Europe, including, including what becomes West Germany. You have the great winter of 1947, on and on and on and on and you can go. You are at the beginning of another kind of war, which becomes the Cold War. And I don't think we're there either. We're nowhere near there. So I suppose the point I want to make, and I'll end now, is to say that if we draw any lessons from history in general, and from the particular historical moments I've sketched in very, very briefly, and that's what you wanted me to do, of 1871 or 1919 or a 1947 moment, those were moments when you could foresee going forward future crises, future conflicts, and future wars within Europe. And that's the crucial point. You could foresee, foresee, even if you can do it predictably, absolutely accurately that this was the beginnings of new conflicts of, of and new problems for the whole of you and we're nowhere near that at this moment in time so I'll be the first historian and actually will draw some optimistic conclusions from the past <laughs> rather than the usual pessimistic ones thank you very much for listening thank you
3: I'm one of the miserablest that Michael has warned you about. (laughs) I'm just looking for the keyboard. There we go. Okay. um, I actually want to argue that advanced capitalist states are experiencing varieties of state failure and that that failure is the most severe in the most liberal states. Uh, It's characterized by very sharp rises in social polarization and the simultaneous collapse of the left in electoral terms. And I want to talk about the UK as a critical case. I'm normally a Central Europeanist. I'm happy to talk about Central Europe in the, um, uh, in the questions, but it strikes me that Brexit is too good a case not to talk about. Um, okay, I've actually chosen... Uh, we, were, we were asked to draw a lesson. Let's see if this is there. Yes, it is. Um, we were asked to draw a lesson by our sort of historical analogies and... Um, The lesson that uh, I want to draw from my analogy is this, uh, the first law of holes. Um, I've chosen 1979, and not just because it's an interesting parallel, but because it's the neoliberalism launched in 1979 that is now reaching escape velocity from the democratic atmosphere. There were common idioms in the conservative electoral campaign of 1979 and the Leave campaign of 2016 both evoked the threat of a bureaucratic superstate and something approaching a conspiracy of that state against the public. And both promised to rescue a greater Britain from the political forces that were holding it back. The argument I want to make here is that both campaigns were based on a misdiagnosis of the crisis at hand. And if the diagnosis is wrong, then the selected cure is unlikely to help. In fact, it may make the underlying condition considerably worse. I think we are now in a crisis of ungovernability and this is common to advanced capitalist states that is far more profound than that in the 1970s and it has its roots less in the European Union than in the failures in the British case of the homegrown neoliberal reforms of the British state. These reforms have aggravated, not resolved, the social divisions that emerged with deindustrialization. Over the last 30 years... Liberal market economies in general, and the UK in particular, have transformed the character of their states through privatisation, outsourcing, internal managerialism and agentification, through the development of quasi-markets in welfare and the rejection of industrial policies. At the same time, permissive tax and regulatory regimes have encouraged and allowed large corporations to opt out of their former social obligations in the name of greater competitiveness. It is worth noting that insofar as the European Union has become a champion, a transnational champion of these reforms, it did so at the UK's constant urging. These reforms have been driven by the dominant new rights diagnosis of the economic crises of the 1970s, and they're based on a radical public choice or supply-side approach to economics aligned with the Chicago School. According to this diagnosis, It was the bureaucratic leviathan state that was primarily responsible for the end of the post-war golden age of growth because of its inhibition of the market. According to the new right, and after a while, new labor too, it wasn't radical technological change or deindustrialisation. It wasn't the Nixon shock or the end of Bretton Woods, nor rising exchange rate instability. It wasn't stagflation, and nor was it the oil crises that had confronted the country with a need to re-evaluate its production regime. It was the state. And so it's been the state, above all else, that has been transformed. Unfortunately, the supply-side critique of the state is profoundly flawed. Supply-siders see the state as a monopoly firm that seeks to exploit its monopoly position for private gain, and it succeeds because voters are no better than radically dispersed and inattentive shareholders. But if you adopt this metaphor, then it becomes axiomatic that the state is doomed to operate with all the negative tendencies of a monopoly, such as exploitative price-making, parasitic rent-seeking, and general budgetary greed and institutional complacency. It's in this light that the European Union is no no more nor no better than a cartel of self-seeking enterprises. Clearly, if you conceive of the state in this way, then the only rational solution is to break it, It's to break the state's monopoly power and subject it to market forces wherever you can. But what if the metaphor is just wrong? What if it was always a normative assertion rather than an argument based on the historical evolution of actual states? What if a failed uh, failed firm enforces a limited reallocation of labor and capital, and a failing state collapses the effective mechanisms for democratic representation the stability of capitalism, social integration, and public order as such. It turns out that a second floor in supply-side reasoning is a killer, even if you like the diagnosis. And the problem is this. The vast majority of the tasks and goods provided by modern states, whether that's policy making or service provision, these violate most of the preconditions for efficient markets or market-like transactions to occur, such as perfect information between buyers and sellers, no external effects not priced in the original transaction, and no interdependencies between buyers and sellers. As Hans Werner Zinn pointed out, since governments have stepped in historically when markets have failed, it can hardly be expected that a reintroduction of the market through the back door will work. It is likely to bring about the same kind of market failure that brought about government intervention in the first place. But I think Zinn is being over-optimistic, back to the miserabilism because it turns out that you don't just reintroduce market failures, you induce state failures into the bargain where they didn't previously exist. As the economic theories of contract and property rights make clear, the higher the complexity of a good or a product, the higher the risk of so-called asymmetrical contracts in which the seller has more information than the buyer and hence has built-in opportunities to exploit that buyer. This is a fundamental problem when the state becomes that customer. Transaction cost theory which considers the friction costs of contractual negotiation and compliance shows that trying to manage such contracts leads to massively increased costs and these costs can never be rendered efficient because of the intrinsically unbalanced nature of the original contract because of the complexity of the good. After 30 years of reform, the evidence suggests that introducing business into the UK state and competition between states produces the worst rather than the best of both public and private regimes. In the case of welfare reforms and the birth of quasi-markets in welfare, the UK norm has become one of profit-seeking firms or trusts engaged at the taxpayer's expense but in thoroughly non-competitive conditions. The resulting failure to produce either higher quality services or lower costs has forced the state into a Kafkaesque games of regulatory catch-up because of its ongoing statutory responsibility for outcomes. But in the name of this continuing supply-side experiment, our schools, health service, prisons, transport services, and social care institutions have become textbook cases for what economists call moral hazard, in which private providers have few incentives to avoid risky or perfunctory behavior because of the de facto insurance of continued public payment. And of course, the hazards of low motivation existed in theory in the vertically integrated states of before – But in the public state, there was greater informational and and logistical coherence, lower transaction costs, no profit motive to satisfy, and something resembling a vocational culture of public service, albeit, of course, not everywhere and not always. A relatively hidden dimension of today's crisis of the state is the increasing role for private businesses throughout the entire state administration – this permeation by business and the adoption of managerialist techniques designed for corporate production regimes has caused extensive administrative and informational fragmentation. After a sabbatical in the Cabinet Office in 2005, Matthew Flinders reported that UK central government has actually lost the capacity to operate meta governance over state authority. It has lost the ability to see what it is doing as an overarching authority. And, of course, that authority is increasingly held in private hands. But this process of disintegrating state capacity is only intensified after 2010 and 2015 under the renewed supply-side zeal of the coalition and the conservatives. It seems likely, in fact, that the process of Brexit is going to be the thing that fully exposes the crisis we should have been talking about, which is the crisis of our state and its implications for economic development. Ruth Dixon and Christopher Hood find that reported administrative costs in the UK have actually risen by 40% in constant prices over the last 30 years, despite a third of the civil service being cut, whilst total public spending has doubled, and running costs were driven up most in the outsourced areas. Deep failures of service, complaints, and judicial challenges have soared, and this is in no respect the better government for less money promised for over 30 years. But these reforms have also increasingly undermined the accountability and autonomy of government because the more the state is structurally dependent on private provision, the harder it becomes to reverse unpopular or even openly failing policies. The democratic principle of fiscal consent is that people are willing to pay their taxes because the liabilities are fair and the revenues are never confiscated. But that principle is becoming dangerously stretched. The wealthiest firms have escaped their side of the fiscal contract through an international race to the bottom on tax rates, standards, and enforcement. But in the meantime, the burden of continuing taxation is pushed onto less mobile factors such as labor, consumption, and small and medium-sized businesses. And all this might have been worth it had we gained the promised renaissance of investment, innovation, and higher quality employment that was supposed to occur spontaneously when the state was taken out of the way. But what we've seen instead is the transformation of capitalism from a system of wealth creation to a system of wealth extraction. A process of financialization has occurred on three levels. Financial markets and institutions increasingly displace other economic uh, sectors as the source of profitable activity. Non-financial corporations are becoming financialized through a regime of maximizing shareholder value, wherein profits are increasingly extracted for higher executive pay, often through share buybacks, and dispersed through higher share dividends, rather than reinvested. Hence the possibility of higher increasing sort of firm value, but stagnating, if not declining, prosperity in a deeper sense. Finally, finance has penetrated into every aspect of life as people are increasingly incorporated into financial activity and to a degree that massively increases the systemic risk inherent in the boom and bust cycles of financial markets. I really don't believe it was intended this way. It looks like cock-up rather than conspiracy. But the longer it goes on, the less the political elite can or will escape blame. Over the last 30 years, the mainstream liberal centrist elite can be seen to have instrumentalized the powers of the state for party political or even private gain while simultaneously withdrawing the state's protections from the public. And it's done this through an era of sharpening inequality and now stagnating productivity. It was under these conditions that the British population was given a referendum on Brexit and in which our exit from the European Union was declared to be the silver bullet to ease our frustration and our collective pain. And the EU had, not least under UK leadership, become a champion of many uh, of these reforms. Nevertheless, it was not the EU, but the conservative Labour and Liberal parties in government that have made of the British state both an inefficient public regime and an almost completely non-competitive, indeed highly extractive, private regime. These reforms together have created a chaotic hybrid state that is now prone to all the rent-seeking and exploitative behaviours along with Byzantine attempts at regulation that supply-siders have always claimed to abhor. But regarding these failures, the mainstream parties are completely silent. So why are we leaving the European Union rather than having an animated public debate about the systemic crisis of the political economy? One reason is that this crisis does not fall neatly between party lines, as it did in 1979. No party but the Greens makes an immediate gain from discussing any aspect of these changes. Neither is the expressive function of parties encouraged by the fact that all the most powerful actors in the British political economy, from the political parties to the Confederation of British Industry to the city, are implicated in the formation of these conditions. And even if supply-side reforms had not built so powerful a constituency for their extension, it would be awkward now for mainstream elites to call for rebuilding the state after so many years of declaring its relative inefficiency. To end on a deeply miserable note, (laughs) it's not clear to me how this trend to an increasingly captured state and the increasing social polarization that results from it can be reversed without a fairly radical shift in the prevailing political economic paradigm. The UK production regime, like that in the USA, offers up an increasingly divergent set of social interests. There were distinct patterns in the Brexit vote, but also in the Trump vote, Mm. of divergent voting preferences between the centres of the new knowledge economy, rooted in ICT and services and financial uh, activity, the the new sort of financial sector, and those of the rural, industrial, and mid-range technology economies. I think those trends support a pretty worrying thesis which is that there are deepening structural divisions in advanced capitalist economies between the higher educated voters who feel able to self-insure in the conditions of a minimal state or even a failing state but who prefer the very dynamic labor markets that attend those forms of production versus the rest, those with really very little hope or very little stake in these production regimes that level of social polarization, particularly in majoritarian electoral systems, is completely inimical to compromise, consensus, or democracy. These divisions are far more severe than they were in the 1970s, but the supply-side strategy of the Brexiteers seems to be to intensify the already failed experiments of the last 30 years. And indeed, that's an issue in terms of supply-side politics in all the advanced capitalist states. That is the ongoing remedy for uh, the continuation of stagnating growth. So when it comes to history repeating itself, it seems to me both tragic but also potentially farcical that it is the most dogmatic supply-siders of all who are now in the driving seat. (laughs) I fear that they get the diagnosis of our current condition completely and exactly wrong. (laughs) And I worry that given a mandate in June, their idea of a cure may be unusually toxic to the British body politic.
2: That's all, (laughs) folks.
0: Thank you, well, um, I I always find it interesting thinking about the the importance of history as a sociologist. And I should say that um, in sociology, I'm often cut against the trend of many sociologists to kind of say the world today is different from anything which has come in the past. We have different laws. We have different dynamics. Um, Sociology is full of people announcing, you know, we're now globalised. We're now neoliberal. We're now um, post fordist And all these terms which are used to characterise our times. And I, uh, I've often said, well, actually, uh, it's not like that, actually. We haven't broken from the past. The past is an inevitable um, a feature of our social life today. And so I've always been very interested in reflecting upon the kind of historical parameters and historical forebears of where we are now. Having said that, I'm not a predictive sociologist. I don't believe you can predict the future. Um, I don't believe you can go back to the past and say because it happened in a certain way at a certain period, we can expect the same thing to happen again. History is an unfolding dynamic process um, which, which uh, builds upon the past in which the past is never exactly repeated and I've got four visuals to talk through with you some reflections on historical um, parallels with where we are today and I I provocatively um, took the year 1910 as my reference year not because I think we are like 1910 clearly we're not but because actually I think there are some interesting um, similarities and differences which I hope highlight the singularity, of where we are today, and I've got four slides to talk talk through some of the points which occur to me. And the first of these is a familiar graph, which any of you who've been reading, you know, the Economist and the Guardian and the newspapers in the last two or three years will have seen some version of this graph, which is uh, the famous graph of Thomas Piketty, the uh, economist who wrote this, um, you know, shattering book, <laughs> Capital in the 21st Century, massively read, a million hard copies have been sold. Um, And it is full of graphs like this. And what you see in this graph is um, the trends in the share of the top 10% of income earners. uh, And it indicates the proportion of the total national income which they earn. And what you see here, and I've chosen the year 1910, because in 1910, in most European nations, the share of the national income earned by the top 10%, i.e. the best-paid elite, reached its peak um, between 45 and 50 percent um, and what Piketty shows and this is a trend in, in, in all the nations he looks at is that during the 20th century that declines, we become more equal um, not perfectly equal but, but more equal uh, and he raises the issue that actually since the 1970s 1980s that trend has gone into reverse and we are now moving back towards the world of 1910 if we are thinking about the, um, the relative share of income that goes to the top 10%, so are we, and it's a question he raises in the book and doesn't answer it, which is are we moving back to a new kind of aristocratic age in which the Victorian the elite is being reconstructed in a different guise, the guise of CEOs, bankers, financiers, who are so wealthy compared to the rest of the population? I think this is a fantastic provocation. Because, again, we're so often used to saying, everything's changed, we've left that old world behind. Uh, And Piccoli's saying, actually, perhaps not. Perhaps we're actually returning to that world in a certain kind of way. And he he traces this through with issues like inheritance. Um, Staggering figures, you know, that um, 15% of French people can now expect to inherit um, the average national income. So yeah, the, average, the average national income, which is about a million pounds, in English terms, would be a million pounds at some point in their life. So for a significant proportion of people, they're going to be massive inheritors. But of course, for, much, for many more people, they'll be inheriting very little. <coughs> so the kind of social divisions which Abby was talking about are massively underscored. So are we moving back to this kind of historical period? Um, and that leads me to think about um, this, uh, this graph. Um, I, I googled, I put in the Google, um, Victorian gentleman. Um, and this popped up. Um, French, it's actually a French picture rather than a British one, but you could find similar pictures throughout the whole of the European... All male, all white, all wearing elegant hats, all completely sure that their world is the world of progress, civilisation... Um, no, no belief at all that their world could be different. No real belief that their world could be challenged, and that is the world which was constructed during the amazing decades after the Industrial Revolution and after the democratic revolutions in throughout Europe, and the sense of civilization, progress, development. Um, and I think, and the reason I chose 1910, another reason, which and I know. I put a famous, very famous book by George Dangerfield called The Strange Death of a Liberal England. Mm. And his argument is it's that world of Victorian complacency, if you like, Victorian self-belief, which had been around for decades. That was the year it began to shatter. And, of course, he's writing four years before the beginning of the First World War, but he argues it happens before. Why does it happen, according to Dangerfield? He picks out four reasons. Um, suffragettes, so women, beginning to challenge the authority, not beginning to, but having more effect in some ways in challenging the authority of these gentlemen. Um, Home rule, Irish home rule. And of course, you know, given Scottish nationalism, given (laughs) the Brexit, the question of the nation is once more completely back on the agenda. Syndicalism. Uh, That's a bit different syndicalism because syndicalism is is radical trade unionism. And the period before the First World War was a period of the massive growth of trade unions and that's not happening in, in, uh, in the UK, or indeed most nations, uh, for some of the reasons Abby was talking about. But nonetheless, you could argue that some of the kind of populist politics which we saw in Brexit, we're seeing um, some extent in France, perhaps not as much not as was feared, perhaps, and lies behind Donald Trump's election, is a kind of popular backlash against you know, experts. S- the syndicalists before the First World War, rejected the leadership of the trade unionists, they rejected the leadership of the Labour movement, and said, we want, we, believe it, we believe in direct action, actually. We believe in, we know better than the experts how to do things. That may ring a familiar bell if, from the Brexit referendum. Uh, and the fourth thing he picks out is the the Parliamentary Act of 1911, which meant the uh, House of Lords losing their constitutional Suprem- not supremacy, but semi-equity compared to the House of Commons. It's a constitutional crisis, which I think you can also have mirrors in terms of the Brexit debate and those sort of issues. So it's very un- uncanny, I think, hmm. that there are these parallels. Some differences, but also some parallels. Of course, what this author leads on to is the worry. You know, four years after 1910 comes 1914. Um, major, major world war. Um... The famous saying about from uh, um, Edward Gray, the, the, the Foreign Secretary, that the lamps are going out all over Europe. They won't be lit again in their lifetime. And it's interesting talking to people really since the election of Donald Trump, I think, that there is, people are now saying, well, perhaps we will see a major war. And obviously people think about the Korean situation rather than anything in Europe. And it, it is, I think, an unsettling um, thing to think about. Third issue, um, and I normally want to make a reference to this famous book by Stephen Kern, cultural historian, um, called The Culture of Time and Space. came out many years ago, and he makes the point that the period between 1880 and 1914 was characterised by by a huge self-awareness and set of anxieties about speed-up, about the way in which the world was shrinking because of things like the invention of electricity, the telegraph, so this is a map of the telegraph system, developed by the Eastern Telegraph Company. Uh, Motorcar, aeroplanes. A period of massive technological innovation in the, lo- in the last decades before the First World War, which led, led contemporaries to think, wow, we, ha- we just can't place ourselves anymore. Everything's changing. We are in a similar situation, I think. Thinking about the Internet, thinking about fake news, thinking about the rise of robots, all these things um, are very much at the forefront of our consciousness. Um, I would pose the issue uh, that, in the sense we've been here before, as Stephen Kern shows, we've had these concerns about everything speeding up, and actually, although those changes are genuine and very significant, they can also reproduce patterns from the past. And this is, of course, one of the reasons why I wanted to show this map, which is a map of the Eastern Telegraph Company's connections, which fundamentally trammel empire, and they trammel the dominant trade routes, so in a way, these new forms of technology are being used to reinforce existing kinds of power relationships <laughs> uh, and such like, rather than challenge them. So in some respects, it's different, but in other respects, it's the same. And I think, um, you know, our anxieties about te- technology and, and such like could be seen in the parallel light. And my, far, my last uh, slide is certainly very, you know, it's... it's, it's, uh, it's um, boring and predictable in some ways. It's a map of the world in 1910. Um, And, of course, you know, and you'll be familiar to many of you, it it colours the the parts of the world called the empires, which controlled them. Um, So you can see the British Empire, lots of the map is in red. The French Empire, the German Empire, Portuguese Empire, and so on and so forth. So 1910, you know, was one of the last periods when the imperial global system was dominant um, it was to unravel um, in the following decades with the result of the world wars, the colonisation, anti-im- anti-imperial movement. So in some ways, this was the world of the Victorian gentlemen. They assumed Europe, they assumed Europe would be at the centre of things uh, forever because Europe was the centre of civilization. They couldn't imagine, really, that it would be massively challenged. And I kind of wonder whether we are in a similar kind of situation now It's a different kind of um, empire, of course. We don't have these kind of formal empires, not very much, at least. But it is worth thinking about the kind of set of relationships and set of uh, forms of government and governmentality set in place during, particularly, the decades after the Second World War. I was very struck, one of my kind of quite revealing experiences recently was going to give a talk at the OECD in Paris. I had a number of interesting things. This is, just this, this is in December, just after the Donald Trump election. And there was a whole, there a massive Congress of uh, discussing you know, global policy issues around uh, development and growth and such like. Uh, interesting in a number of ways. One of them is it took me nearly an hour to get through security. I thought, hmm. how interesting. This is partly Paris and partly the OECD. How interesting that these predominantly economists had to wall themselves up in this enormous security system before you could get into it. Um, but then also there was a real sense from that community that they didn't have a, really have a clue as to what was going on. So mm. there are all these models being produced about um, not produced but discussed and discussions about the squeeze middle and what's happening in income distribution, but a sense of bafflement because all the cost benefit analysis is behind Brexit, behind staying in the EU, for instance. You didn't really explain that using the terms of the kind of the expert elite which came into existence and came into dominance, if you like, in the years after the Second World War. And so it's kind of wondering, really, whether we're seeing a new kind of... Well, whether we're seeing our familiar kinds of relationships which have been put in place to kind of manage the globe, manage trade and, and economic relationships, whether they are also looking friable and whether they're going to uh, crack. So in a way, I'm also a bit of a pessimist, I think, um, I do, I do, I do feel that our world is um, is on a very delicate point. I think, and uh, in that respect, many of the points Abby said, and and many of Michael's comments, very relevant. I think, um, and I think, in a way, one way to think about this, going back to my discussion of Thomas Piketty, is the kind of the weight of the past is catching up with it. At one point, at one level, everything is speeding up. You know, money gets whizzed around the world at the, at the press <coughs> of a button. But the weight of accumulated capital, in, in these terms, is, is also in play. And that is, going to create, is creating increasing tension. The power of debt. Think about global debt in many, many nations. Think about the power of capital, accumulated capital. So um, I absolutely completely agree. I think our, our political parties, our political institutions, haven't caught up with where we're at. And I think we need new imaginative thinking and new imaginative ways of understanding dynamics of uh, inequality and economic change if we to try and really grasp this because currently it is kind of uh, fairly un- unthinking and, and unreflective populism using very simple very kind of uh, uninformed notions of a kind of return to nationalism which has carried popular opinion I don't think it should be that I don't think popular opinion should be led by those currents but they, uh, currently they are so I think we have a lot to do to try and think about how we can try and develop a more progressive way to take forward Um, people's political views and values. Thank you.
1: So, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Uh, I think we can now open the floor to questions. Uh, There is a roving microphone, and um, I ask you to keep the questions relatively brief, uh, to introduce yourself, and maybe to uh, clearly say who you are directing the question to.
4: Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Well, my, Robin Hanna, alumnus of the International Relations Department this particular university. Uh, what, uh, what I think, um, uh, I'm reading public with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the first time in the history of Europe, territorial boundaries changed in a non-violent manner. Now, that's the first time in the history of Europe that's happened. All the other great changes came since, uh, let's say, uh, the, the Treaty of Utrecht that ended the wars of Spanish Hispanic accession, that Congress of Vienna, the Onic Wars, then you have the Treaty of Versailles that ended the First World War and Potsdam down the Second World War. So is that, um, uh, Michael Cox, I'm thinking particularly of you as an uh, expert in relations, is that not a very hopeful sign in terms of the future of Europe in later? The first time history of Europe with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the territory's boundaries changed nonviolently. Could you comment on that? Do you want me to? Okay. Uh, Well, the answer to your question
2: briefly is, you're right. Um, Although I wouldn't overstate how peaceful the end of the Cold War or or the collapse of the Soviet Union actually turned out to be, we're still seeing the working out of the collapse of the USSR in Ukraine. Uh, We saw it previously in Georgia, uh, and we're seeing it increased uh, tensions between uh, Russia under Putin and the West. So, You know, short term, you're absolutely right. And also, by the way, one of the consequences of the collapse of Eastern Europe and ultimately the Soviet Union was the knock-on effects in former Yugoslavia, which are clearly connected. So although I agree with you in broad terms, you're quite right, Gorbachev, and that's the one thing we should be thanking him for greatly who led a peaceful revolution and didn't try to use force to reverse history or to stop it happening. I agree with you entirely on that particular issue. And that, and as I, I made in my own comments from an international relations point of view, not from the point of view of my other colleagues with whom I basically agreed, by the way, on their levels of analysis. I agree with you. The only thing I would say, by the way, on the end of this Soviet Union, I was thinking about that when listening to, to my two colleagues, I think... In a way, the end of the USSR and the collapse of what was actually existing socialism or Stalinism, whatever you want to prefer to call it, you know, clearly opened up possibilities, freedom, democracy, and many, many other things. And I think the peoples of Poland would not, would not ask you to say it was a bad thing, the end of the Cold War. Uh, quite, quite the reverse. On the other hand, it does seem to me it does, have, it does have implications because the alternative to the market which you were talking about, that went... And although the economic revolution that you talk about began in the 70s, largely, by the way, as a result of economists who've been at the LSE, not so much as those at Chicago, they were second rate, by the way, compared to Hayek, you know, I mean, he, he led that revolution and carried that revolution through here and elsewhere. But I I think the next part of that neoliberal economic revolution, which was theorized by the Austrian school and Hayek in particular, had a massive influence, by the way, on Thatcher. Um, It carried on in 1989 and 19. and everybody thought the alternative had failed, and markets were the solution. That moment of what you you didn't use the phrase, the phrase I quite like, I think it's from Krugman or, or maybe Soros, of market fundamentalism. I think, you know, in a way, it may have been peaceful, but it had large... Scale ideological and consequences, because you only thought markets could work. And moreover, you thought that markets couldn't fail. And it was that which both led to the kind of socio economic consequences which you're talking about, with which I totally agreed. And also, I'd, I've always made the case, not against economists, but in, in order to educate my dear economic friends, uh, that 2008 itself, I think, is rooted in what actually happened between 1999 and 1991, because why in 2008 happened? There's many technical reasons, and no doubt other reasons, but it happened because people thought it couldn't happen. <laughs> you, you, you assume that it couldn't happen because markets could not fail. So while I agree with the gentleman at the front in broad terms, although I'd want to qualify the peaceful character of it over the longer term, I think there's consequences of what happened then, which are still living with us today, and, and feed into your analysis and that of mine. So yeah.
3: I would I would also say so far. I sure. mean, it, it, taking in the caveats about Yugoslavia as well. Sure, um, it's a big, big one, sure. But the one way of thinking about Central European political economics in the last 25 years is that if you think of the West European experience of this very difficult process of deindustrialization, difficult transitions, mm. polarizing politics, uh, stagnating growth, um, and the decline of the left, imagine that in a massively intensified and speeded up version in Central Europe. So, what you've seen in Hungary and Poland, the most reformist, most liberal countries in Central Europe, is the complete collapse of the left in the last five or six years and their replacement by populist nationalist parties, Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, and the um, Justice and Law, Law and Justice in uh, in Poland. And these are really quite radically nationalistic Mm. parties. But the reason they're there, I think, is, is very similar. The East and West are really not to be considered differently in this sense the structural processes going on underneath are incredibly similar they're just magnified so the polish and hungarian ex-communists in order to demonstrate their liberal virtue became the most blairite social democrats in central europe they moved completely to the neoliberal right economically but remained socially liberal in political terms and the promise was that the region was going to grow so incredibly fast under liberalism that you would still be able to maintain a social contract and a welfare state and so on and so forth. But they haven't been able to do that. They have very high unemployment, which has been chronic, incredibly high pension liabilities, and, as in Western Europe, all the social risk is shifted onto the young. Mm. And if you look at the electoral divisions, they're between the metropolitan educated. Cities who vote for the Liberals and absolutely everybody else who used to vote Social Democrat or Christian Democrat, Peasantist, who now vote for the the populist parties. Mm -hmm. And so you've lost one of the pillars of a pluralistic liberal system. You basically have an anti-system versus a system vote Mm -hmm. in democratic terms. And that is increasingly true across Central Europe. And all the policies of outsourcing and privatising the state make privatization in the early 90s look like a really clean process. Mm. The Czech Republic is ranked 117th out of 148 states for corruption uh, globally, and Slovakia is ranked 138th. So the Czech Republic is ranked equal to Ukraine for the misuse of public funds. And that has a very big impact on its politics.
1: Mm. Yes, please.
3: Um, thank you for the interesting discussion. Um, I wanted to ask about the role of historical amnesia. Uh, amnesia? Yeah, okay. in, in Europe. So you, you mentioned like a pretty optimistic point of view uh, for the future, but if you look at the younger generation that was either born or grew up after the Cold War, definitely after the World Wars, doesn't really see the same sense of doom and catastrophe that could result from the the rise of nationalism. Uh, so how do how do you think that might play a role in
2: the future?
1: Is it the question for all three? For all three. Uh,
2: whoever Anybody wants to. Want? Mike, do you want to do some amnesia? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that is a, that, that,
0: that and I think that is definitely mm. uh, an issue. And I think, unfortunately, because you know we live in a culture which is always obsessed by novelty and innovation, mm. we forget the you know we're being encouraged to forget things from the past. Oh, yeah, that's always been the case to, to some extent, but arguably that's that's even even stronger today. It's definitely. Um, I mean, a lot of the work <laughs> I've been doing on um, social uh, social inequality and social class divisions in 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 Europe, not just in the UK, but across many European nations, are, mm. are showing this really quite interesting pattern, which is that if you look at people's cultural reference points, um, the kind of historical canonical national cultural. Traditions, if you like, are less salient to younger people. They're not interested really in reading Shakespeare or yeah. listening to um, Edward Algar. They're, they're really much more interested in contemporary issues and contemporary music, contemporary uh, events. So we're seeing this enormous speed up at one level, um, and thinking carefully about precedent and uh, and you know the longer term durée, if you like, has. It's is difficult. That's you know, one reason why I think people like Piketty who are emphasising the, the long durée is so mm. important, but it's, it's, mm. it's fighting a difficult battle.
2: I would simply add to that very quickly. I mean, it's not just amnesia. I mean, actually, in many, many cases, it's just sheer historical ignorance and lack of lack of knowledge. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't like the word post-fact world, but we might be living in a post-historical world in the sense that people's... I mean, there is great d- demand for popular history. I mean, if you go into the regular bookshops, there's a huge demand for popular history. So it's not that people are not interested in history. It's just the way that things are being framed in a way which actually leads to the sorts of questions. And that that is extremely dangerous because nature abhors a vacuum and ignorance also can be replaced by some, real knowledge can then be replaced by ignorance. And perhaps one of the things we're seeing today is that the post-fact world, as opposed to what I call the post-historical world, you know, that actually is a byproduct of that kind of his- historical, I mean, you can fill it with any nonsense. You can fill it with any kind of rubbish. Uh, I Just get back very quickly on the USSR point, because again, as an historian of the Cold War, I'm bound to be fixated on that, uh, <laughs> or at least it's lessons. If there was an advantage of the Soviet Union and the continued existence of the Soviet Union, it gave you a sense that there was a world history of the 20th century, which started, let us put it bluntly, in 1917, and then it ran through, and its, in its consequences, thus, for international and world history, not just for the Soviet Union, were just huge and enormous. And thus, when you, when you grew up when the Soviet Union was still around, and I, I was born in 1947, so you can work out how old I am, um, and then you lived through the whole of the Cold War, what you had to have was some his, sense of the historical, because it went back to 1917. That shaped so much of the world in which you live. You used to teach courses here in the economics department on the economics of planning, Therefore, you had to learn something about planning. The development the economics of the 1970s and 80s was very much about what was you know, planned industrialization, which drew from the, from the Soviet experience to, to some degree national liberation. So history, therefore, wasn't just something which was an addition. It was actually central for really understanding the world around you. And therefore, one of the consequences, in, not, not, not planned, of course, uh, of, of the end of the Soviet Union, I think, has been to actually reshape what we mean by history, how we think of history and the, and the importance and centrality of history leading to the problems, I think, which you've, you've hinted at.
3: I think, I think the amnesia is selective. Very. <laughs> um, I think if you, look at the, if you listen to the populism in Europe and in yeah. the US, um, what the right is doing is outflanking the left on the left rhetorically in terms of... Um, so, Trump... Very, used a lot of allusions to the New Deal,
0: mm. really,
3: infrastructure, uh, back to heavy industry. We will go back to the 1950s, mm. but we'll do it for whites, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's outflanking on the, on the left in certain key themes, but with added nativism. And if you look at the far right in Scandinavia, they are outflanking the left on the welfare state in mm. Sweden and uh, Norway and mm. uh, Finland and Denmark and saying, we will return to the great security uh, of, of, of the previous era, but the only way we can do this is by ending migration and refugee, you know, refugee uh, sort of influx and, and so on. So this is going to be the New Deal, but you know, a nativist version of the, of the New Deal, and, and that has some resonance because the material insecure, the material security, is, is what's been so sort of horribly missing, and I think we are at risk of seeing something very much like that in the UK. Um, There are sentimental allusions. I mean, uh, Theresa May's talk, I mean, surely no coincidence that Boris Johnson published a book on Churchill, right, around the uh, (laughs) um, Brexit campaign. And Theresa May's talk of unity is very uh, much sort of alluding to a tone and an atmosphere of of that period. And and Tim Farron is going to be fitted up for Neville Chamberlain if he's not careful. You know, appeasement. (laughs) Remain is appeasement.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
3: This is so thoroughly removed from where we are in political economic terms. It beggars belief, but that, that is, yeah. these are the themes of today. There's also a right? certain
2: sense of romanticism. I mean, quite a lot of the new right has a kind of highly romanticized view of mm. what the past was yes. and how that past has been distorted by immigration, all sorts of other things. So they kind of hark back. I mean, even mm-hmm. Trump, you know, make America great again. I mean, yep. you know, what is it, Eisenhower, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, make Britain great again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a kind of romantic view that there was once a golden age,
3: mm.
2: primarily white, primarily middle class, and people looked like us and,
3: and, and male
2: and, and male and male. As a indeed. woman, I'm skeptical. Yeah, yeah, no, no, sure, no, no. <laughs> I, I was about to say that. By the way. There you go. But you get my point. I think we Absolutely. we agree we agree on that. So it's kind of it's a use of history as a romantic. And once people start romancing history as kind of an idealized view of the past, that strikes me as very problematic, potentially very dangerous. When people start doing that, I've just come back from India and you know, the, the misuse and uses of, in, uh, of nationalist history in India by the BJP and Mr. Modi is extraordinarily dangerous, extraordinarily dangerous, given that that will have massive impacts and consequences for the sorts of policies and ideologies that he's, he's, he, he himself represents in, in India, and particularly recently in Uttar Pradesh, where, of course, he has a massive majority now, which again brings us back to populism. Uh,
1: the lady in the center there. Thank you.
5: I'm an international relations student, and um, uh, Professor uh, Cox, just a question about the uh, European Union in particular. Uh, how do you see the fact that um, despite the creation of the um, uh, um, uh, foreign high, um, uh, representative for the foreign politics in the uh, European Union, how do you see the total lack of soft power on the global stage, I mean, how do you see the European Union as a weak power in, uh, in terms of global uh, inability to, to project on the global stage its, uh, it's policy? Yeah. Also as a mediator, for example, with the uh, now, uh, how do you see the uh, North Korean crisis?
2: Oh, gosh. <laughs> OK, uh, well, first, first of all, the European Union has absolutely nothing to do with North Korea. Let's be perfectly honest. Um, you know, the European Union doesn't do the hard power the United States does. Whether, whether you think the United States does it very well, it, it's the United States which would do with those kind of larger issues, particularly in Asia and especially on North Korea and the hard security questions. That's not what the European Union ever was. It had all sorts of different kinds of power, and there are better people in the audience, uh, more qualified to talk about soft power, about normative power, about economic power, uh, the kind of power that uh, Robert Kagan didn't like very much when Robert Kagan wrote about, Europe back in 2002, um, I don't think the European Union has lost quite so much soft power as you're implying, by the way. I think, I really don't think, I, don't, I still don't see that. I mean, I travel to China a fair bit, I travel to Asia quite a bit, and I think there is still a sense that, you know, the European Union still represents something still important, in spite of all the problems it confronts today. I mean, they're more worried, by the way, about the United Kingdom, not the European Union, believe me. Uh, you feel almost embarrassed, I kind of want to say. I come from Ireland or something when I travel abroad now. When, I, in fact, my parents do, my grandparents do anyway. Um, so I, so I can kind of claim it was, with, with some degree of credibility. Um, so I, I'm rather more optimistic about that. But the truth, but you're right. I mean, the truth is that soft power of Europe, in, insofar as one defines that term very loosely, you know, depended upon the model working and working and producing jobs and not producing 40% unemployment in Spain. You know, it, it, that's what it depended on. In the end, that soft power of, of, of the European Union, I would argue, and I'd like to hear what other people say, did depend on a sense that, that, that the economy was working, that it wasn't producing all the problems that, that had been talked about by my other two colleagues here, and it seemed to have a future. And the real problem for Europe, it seems to me, and I've written about this in another IR context, is that the long-term international position of Europe in in the world, which is still dominated, let's be honest, by some pretty large powers. Um, One being the United States, which isn't going to decline any time soon, in my opinion, but we can talk about that. The second one being Russia, which is not exactly a superpower, but it's it's, it's a power which has been seriously underestimated. And Putin has reminded us of how much power Russia still possesses. Uh, We've had a wake-up call there. And then thirdly and finally China. Well, in all of those, those three powers, however very different they all are, they all constitute a problem, it seems to me, although they may be beneficial and supportive, the Americans in particular. China, of course, has done all sorts of good things, and Russia is doing all sorts of problematic things. Nonetheless, if you kind of take an IR perspective on this, if you kind of look at long term, not making a prediction here, Mike, but just looking at a trend, then the relative benign environment the European Union had between, say, '92, 3 4 onwards, Until about the middle of the noughties, that relatively benign environment, it seems to me, is moving the other way. I mean, Russia is obviously not a benign partner for the European Union at the moment. Uh, China could become, you know, an alternative model of development, particularly in places like Africa, which we've already seen. And and so I, th- I think one of my big worries is not just to concentrate the debate about what goes on inside Europe, all of which is crucial, but also what that larger international environment is. And again, that kind of reinforces, although I do, I th- I'm, po- I'm optimistic in a sense of looking back, I don't think we're going to repeat any of the awful things that happened between 1918 and, uh, 1914 and 1989. Nonetheless, I, I would be lo- a long-term declinist about, about, about Europe, which I think is again going to, Un, weaken, if not undermine, some of its soft power attraction. Because what what attracts, let's be perfectly honest, it, putting it bluntly, it, is success. I, I'm sorry to say that. You know, it is success. It is success that attracts. And, you know, if there's a perception that Europe's future is weak or is, in a sense, being outpaced by others or outmaneuvered by others or outperformed by others, as it appears to be, to some at least then I think that poses a real, a real long-term problem to its soft power appeal.
1: Question there.
4: Yeah. Hello. Um, thank you, first of all, for your very good analysis of the modern economy and of the modern welfare state
3: and its problems. Um, but your economic analysis is, is focused to the point which would almost confirm the allegation that political economists are not interested in,
4: in culture, and I'm also surprised by how little we've actually heard of, of Europe in particular, rather than the modern capitalist state. And I was wondering what the
3: panel thought of the role of cultural forces and the forces of identity, rather
4: than simply economic factors, in the future of Europe. Hmm. I'll let you start that one.
3: It's an excellent question. Might I plead ten minutes? <laughs> no way, I had yeah. 10 minutes uh, and, and, and given, given a chance of course it, I would consider those factors absolutely important but the question is what are you going to prioritise in a, in a short analysis um, I mean in, it is I think one of the great problems of analysis general, generally in social science that we're becoming incredibly segmented mm. you know economists don't talk about the state mm. welfare economists barely talk about the state um, it's, it's a battle taking, all the different disciplines in the social sciences talk about the state in these incredibly fragmentary ways. And so to try and get a systemic overview of the way the state is developing is a remarkably difficult thing to do. You have to be completely interdisciplinary. One of the most interesting writers on the cultural aspects of the state is Richard Sennett, mm. I think, in terms of sort of modern politics and the the changing Uh, sort of narratives around it and how these... So one of his themes, which I think is very interesting, um, is the idea of how consumerism has leaked into politics as such, so that he talks about the idea of an audience democracy uh, and a a relatively passive uh, approach to political participation in which it's something that you observe and that you critique, but it's not something that, that the modern narratives of politics don't give people a... A civic participatory identity Mm. and that this is very problematic in terms of the public relations uh, industry around politics that talks about uh, political campaigns and ideas as offers as commercial as almost like products and and that scope out your attitudes towards them via focus groups and all the methods used in commercial advertising so I think there are definitely these these connecting points Where cultural, you know, anthropologists, um, sociologists, political scientists, and economists absolutely need to talk to each other. And what one of the things that makes me happy in the European Institute is it's an interdisciplinary Mm. institution. But that's relatively unusual in the social sciences. We're terribly Mm. ghettoised, and we talk past each other uh, to a tremendous degree. And I think one of the problems with gaining a new orthodoxy, as it were, or new ideas that really have some kind of systemic appeal is that social scientists are not in that business anymore. We're terribly ghettoised and tend not to think in terms of these grander narratives in the way that Keynes, and the great sort of political economists of the 20s and 30s thought, who spent their lives also talking to people in the humanities Mm. and across you know across civilized life um you know norman davis wrote this funny thing at the beginning of the, his history of europe that mm. um, historians are talking more and more about less and less but i think it's something you can say about social scientists in in general that's a very sweeping response but um, mm. what i'm essentially saying is it's very difficult to talk coherently about culture and how it connects to the political economy um.
0: I think, I think that's right. But if I can say a few words about culture, because I think, I think it is crucial. I think but I think one of the, one of the things about culture is culture is divisive often. Um, there's a kind of fuzzy, warm notion of culture. It's sort of something which we share in common, like you know, Christmas trees and such like. But actually, culture is very divisive. And in, in terms of the connecting to the, to, the, to the political economy, I actually think, I mean, the point I've been made that this division between kind of expert workers in the labour markets working in IT and banking, often graduates, versus workers in uh, ex-industrial jobs, manu- manual, routine manual jobs, um, routine service jobs, being a big divide. That is also a cultural divide. It's not just an economic, economic divide. It's cultural in terms of the kind of educational qualifications you get. But it's also, in terms of the debate about Europe, there's a, a very powerful book by the um, American sociologist Neil Fligstein mm. called Euroclash, which came out a few years ago. Mm. It's very pressing, I because mean, he, what, he, what he basically argued is he said, well, Europe, there is a European project, and there is what he called a European field, mm in which a European culture is being uh, mobilised by people. But these people are professionals and managers. These are the people who get at airports and travel around Europe. And they're happy. I mean, they're the people who voted to remain with great enthusiasm, of course, in, in, in the <coughs> UK. But then there's people who are, who are not part of that constituency at all. And for them, as, as was said earlier by both Michael and Abby, they, they, for them, it's the nation. And they, they don't feel they belong to this European project. Mm. So I actually think the cultural divisions are reinforcing um the economic ones and they're kind, it's a kind of mutually to mutual c- circle
2: I, i'll only add i mean I, obviously it's a much larger question it would take too long but identity politics per se i i be perfectly honest I, I find problematic maybe this goes back to my old marxist days and i kind of haven't abandoned much of that kind of universal categories were the ones i always used to operate with and i think i still do Um, And although I understand why identity cultural politics became so influential and still remains so in in many areas of discourse, both in academia and and in the real world of politics, uh, I I find much of identity politics increasingly worrying and difficult to deal with. I mean, Brexit was in part about identity politics. It was about the the notion of being English. It wasn't about the notion of being Scottish. It certainly wasn't the notion about being a nationalist in Northern Ireland, about which I can talk with some confidence because I lived there for 20 years and survived, um, Mrs. Le Pen is talking about a notion of an identity of Frenchness. Um, uh, Trump, I mean, after all, what did he talk about? It, was an, it, was, it wasn't just about globalization is producing unemployment, blah, 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 and all the things that go with that. He's talking about a notion of a, an American identity, which is not Muslim, which is not Mexican, as it turned out, not Canadian either, you know. So, and, and, and Mr. Erdogan in Turkey is certainly using identity politics, as a means of marginalizing opposition and identifying those who are true Turks, i.e. those who support the AKP, and those who are not part of the, poli- the polity. So while I can kind of understand academically the rise of identity politics and the, the culture, of course, I think it's somewhat separate, actually, although I think it's, it's folded in, I, the, the rise of identity politics, it seems to me, is very much embedded into some of the real problems that we're talking about here this evening and arises out of some of the economic changes as much as political change and the failure of the left. Well, I think it's a the search absence of the left its well. a search
3: for certainty. Is a search it? for it's for, a, you know, if you, yeah. if you don't have material exactly. security, then it would be nice to have some kind of security. Sure. And, and to try and have the security of identity, at least, would seem like an improvement. Um, in terms of advanced capitalist states, Europe, North America, these are the advanced capitalist states. So it, mm. it's, it's, you know, they're part of, Europe is kind of a major part of that Venn diagram, if you like.
1: Um. Okay. Back, yes, the back. Thank you. Hi, and my name is Sophia, and I'm a financial journalist. So we talk a lot about whether this time of history is like a past time in history. But I would kind of say the way we communicate and the way we consume our news has changed so much with technology. I mean, things like attention spans have decreased um, and we've seen
0: kind of real lack of nuance in the press. Now everything's very polarized. And do you
3: think this has kind of fueled populism to an extent, it's kind of made people more impatient. They just want
0: you know, that instant kind of answer to complex problems and how um, influential has
1: that been? We have
0: only four or five minutes. Can you? Mind. I mean, obviously that, that view is, is very commonly talked about, as if, you know, and mm. behind the, the, the idea of um, fake news. And, of course, we've heard about Donald Trump buying up all these sentiment analysis from <laughs> Twitter and so forth. So it's an element of that. I mean, there is, a, there is an element of hyperbole about that too. I mean, when, when there was the Egyptian revolution, that was always said to be about mm. Twitter and people on Twitter. And that recent research says it's not much. quite as simple as that, that, mm. that. Twitter wasn't that important. And um, I think there is... A, a, I think, a genuine issue that uh, the world of Facebook and social media is kind of hollowing out, kind of real journalism um, by people, you know, expert journalists reporting, and that, and so you know, you can just see what's happening to many of the of the uh, newspapers, and uh, I think there's a genuine issue around that. Um, and I, I, Obviously, social media is significant, but I think, I think it's more, probably a more nuanced change than simply saying that social media dominates everything.
2: I, I would simply add one thing in this country, we're just talking about the UK. I mean, I, everything you say may well be true, uh, but it seems to me, in terms of communication, information, and its dissemination, uh, we, we should look actually at a more fundamental question of the structure of power of press and who owns it and how much it is concentrated in the, a very, very few hands. And while I don't think it's, it would be right to suggest only that the four biggest-selling newspapers in this country were in favor of Brexit, uh, and I won't name who they are, because if you don't know who, what they are, well, please leave the room. But, you know, the very concentration of press power in the hands of four major newspapers, and this goes back to the way the press was created in this country and re-established, by the way, by Mrs Thatcher, Mr. Murdoch's name should be mentioned in this regard, and he, by the way, also, I think, had an enormous impact on on, on what actually happened in the United States. So, you know, it it may well be we could talk a lot about social media, and I think we should, but I think maybe we can go out into the public domain and say, well, hold on, you know, look, look at the structure of press in this country, who owns it and what positions did they take and why? during that campaign, and I I think that did make a huge difference because the dissemination of information came through those four major newspapers and they were the biggest-selling newspapers. That may be a problem too. We've got to deal with why they are so popular, Uh, but that's another question.
1: Okay, we have two minutes. Uh, One last question. Um, Sir, you've been waiting for quite some time. (laughs) (laughs) That's
2: good Can't get everybody in. Very quick, please. My my name is Robert Heath. I've retired, but I, I studied here in the 70s, actually, in the LSE. I had a question about the Brexit and the European Union in the sense that does the panel think that actually Brexit may actually make the uni- uh, more unity within the European Union in a sense that they now see they need to hang together because if they don't, the historical issues of the past might, might re-emerge. <laughs>
1: Can you keep your answers very brief?
2: Yes. Uh, well, uh, 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 an honest answer is I don't <laughs> know because although Mrs May know what Brexit means, I certainly don't.
0: <laughs> uh,
2: Brexit could mean one of any 37 outcomes, can't it? Uh, all we can say, it, it, it may make the European Union and those members of the European Union more united, but if they're going to be, become more united, it's basically to prove that leaving the European Union is a very bad thing to do, and therefore the Brits will pay. And I, I could fully understand why why those who want to hold the Union together, which I want to see held together would say that one of the better ways of actually holding the European Union together, or at least, is to, de- pour décourager les autres, make sure that Britain is worse off outside the Union than within it. That, that's a perfectly logical argument. It's not, not one I feel comfortable at saying, but it's, it seems to me a perfectly logical position for them to take, because they want to preserve what has been one of the found, found, foundations of peace, democracy, stability and prosperity in Europe over the last... 35 or 40 years and, and, and no doubt they would want to preserve that but one of the ways of preserving that is, is going it seems to me is, is to show that leaving the european union carries a price and will
1: okay i'm afraid oh, one, we have... one more okay sorry yes yeah. quickly yes It may
3: make the EU more progressive in the sense that without the UK, some things won't be vetoed, (laughs) like the the Tobin tax, the financial transaction tax has got a better chance with the Mm. UK age. Uh, But um, Luxembourg and Austria are major vetoers of tax haven uh, legislation, and that's a great shame. Europe would have gained $87 billion in tax revenue in 2014 if tax havens had been regulated. That would make quite a difference to austerity. Um, mm. and, and so there are key measures, individual measures, that would make a f- phenomenal, transformative difference in Europe. And, and a real question is going to be the way supply-siders shift, but also how, if you have increasingly kleptocratic regimes like the Hungarian regime and, indeed, the Czech and the Slovak, that policies on tax havens become controversial for entirely private reasons. Um, and, and this is an issue, but the future of supply side economics, I think, has a pretty fundamental uh, uh, effect on where Europe goes, and Britain at least is potentially out of that argument. Mm.
1: Okay, now we've really run out of time, um, but um, I wanted to thank our speakers, Abby, Mike, and Michael, for a very interesting uh, panel, and I also want to thank you, the public, for um, staying mm. with us and asking a very interesting questions. Please okay. join me. Sure. Thank you.